0: This is the Mile High Fi podcast with Carl Jensen and Doug Huntington. We have authentic conversations about the journey to fi, health, happiness, and some very odd tangents. We interview fi experts, side hustlers, people on their way to fi, and those who have reached the other side. Join us every week. And if you want the show notes and links and all that other stuff, head over to milehighfi.com. Before we get to the interview, there's a couple things that I need to mention. Number one, John and Bill formed the Fire Guild, and the Fire Guild is a certified affiliate for Sidera, and Sidera is a medical cost-sharing organization. Don't worry, we get into all the details and things that you need to know, but because the Fire Guild is an affiliate, it means they get some sort of a referral fee or a commission, or there's some deeper relationship there, I don't know what the relationship is, but I do know a lot about affiliate marketing and disclosures, and this is the one that we need to give. If you head over to the Fire Guild website, you'll see information about John and Bill, and you'll also see a form where you can ask them questions about these kinds of organizations. And if you have any specific questions about their affiliation, you can ask them there. I don't know what it is, but there's a form, and they're there to answer questions for you. The second thing I need to let you know about is the editing for this episode. I'm using a different piece of software. If you're listening, you may notice some sort of abrupt cuts. I'm sorry for that. Uh, if you're watching video, you may notice what what are called jump cuts, which is pretty popular in YouTube, but more on the vlogging side and not so much for interviews, but I'm trying it out. The thing is, Carl and I are just a, a ragtag duo of podcasters, and we're trying to do our best and we're trying to keep costs down. So I was checking out this software to see how it would work. I would love to get your feedback. If you like the way it was edited, if you don't like the way it was edited, that's probably more important. If you found it to be harder to listen to, please let me know. You can leave a comment or you can shoot us an email. I'm not going to ramble on forever. So let's get over to the episode.
1: Welcome to the Mile High fi Podcast. My name is Carl Jensen, and I'm here with my co-host.
0: I'm Doug Cunnington.
1: And we have two guests today to talk about a controversial topic in the FI community. Tell us who you are and what you do.
0: Sure.
2: My name is Bill. I am a dad and a husband and a retired guy in Portland, Maine. My partner, John, and I have started something called the Fire Guild, which can be found at thefireguild.com. And it and we're here today to basically discuss our fairly decent knowledge of health sharing and how that fits into sort of being FI.
3: Yep, I'm John, and I live two streets over from Bill, and I have a similar story. I call myself Semi Fi, and I've worked myself professionally my whole life, and that pushed me into the search for health options that could work for my lifestyle.
0: So, as A couple people that are fi or semi-retired, and you had this on your horizon for a little while. Was healthcare something that was troubling? Did you worry about it on your path to where you are right now?
2: I was always thinking about it. As a a well-trained American, I think about and worry about healthcare pretty much every waking moment. And for those of you who are not in the United States, the Americans are all nodding their heads because it's crazy how much healthcare is part of finance in America. So as a self-employed person, as I've been since a year after I graduated from college a long time ago, I was always worried about it. I was always wondering, how was I going to feel secure. How was I going to gain peace of mind in a non-traditional job situation? And so it's been part of my FI journey all along and continues to be, except now I do have peace of mind. Uh, that's the difference.
3: Yeah, my journey to be, I've been self-employed my, my whole life, just like Bill. I didn't actually think about it in my twenties. I really didn't think about healthcare. You're young and healthy and your that frame of mind is what's going to happen. For me, really, it was when I have two children, I'm married and it's when those responsibilities started to stack up. And really when insurance premiums started going up, let's say 2014, 15, it was in the wake of the ACA, health insurance premiums started going up. I think a lot of people can relate to that. And once I started seeing the bill and I keep an eye on every bill. And once you see that one bill, year over year, start climbing up for this, basically the same product. You immediately think, okay, that's a leak and how can I contain it? So.
1: How about you, Doug? Have you considered health insurance? We're probably both in the same situation where we're Wi-Fi or spouse-fi and that we get health insurance through our spouses. Is that the case for you, Doug?
0: Yep, exactly. So my wife still has a W2 job. So yeah, we get health care through her job. We, this is one of our big concerns especially for my wife i'm a little more um, happy go lucky and i assume things will generally work out and she she doesn't think that i'll just i'll leave it at that so she certainly thinks about it a lot more and i understand again in the us this huge unknown we don't know how it's going to shift it's a train wreck right now but it, it things could get worse it could get more expensive i can't imagine how but yeah this is a, a big sort of not a red flag, but it's a big, you know, warning sign in front of us that we're aware of all the time. Have you guys thought about it much?
1: Um, I'm not too concerned. I would say I'm probably more like you, Doug. I, I agree that healthcare in the US is a freaking disaster, but there's lots of alternatives. And we'll talk about those a little bit later, like maybe going out of the country to get healthcare if need be. And if nothing else, it is great, great motivation to eat salad instead of a ton of red meat. So I think about that all the time. Like the best thing you could do to avoid issues with health insurance is to avoid using health insurance in the first place. But I realize that's silly. You can't avoid everything.
0: Let's start getting into the options for early retirees. And I'm not sure how we want to tackle this exactly, but maybe John, do you want to go through some of the options that we we have out there?
3: Yeah, your basic options are, if if you are, let's put it this way, if you're on the the path to FI and or you're already FI, you're in two categories. One is you're growing wealth, trying to get to that point. So you're highly motivated. You're watching every nickel and dime. Once you're in FI, you've got your sizable balance, and then you want to protect that. If you're in the first category, then the big issue really in, in this country is employer plans. So you're working for someone who's providing insurance in 50% of the country is covered by employer plans. So if you're tethered to a job, your motivation may be I'm in a career or I'm in a job and I don't want to do this forever. But the one thing that's going to keep you there for maybe longer than you want, even if you get, get to a point where you can consider yourself five lean five, fat five is going to be that health insurance component because that's tethered to the employer so your options are quit your job and self-insure you know which means you have enough money to cover any unexpected medical costs you could do cobra that's expensive and there's limitations to that i think it's what is it 18 months and then the options would be affordable care act so aca marketplace plans as someone who's been self-employed for what 25 years now you're heavily the scales are stacked, are against you when you're self-employed in a lot of ways and this is definitely one area to come into the health health insurance marketplace with a family or just on your own you're going to be facing the premium game these could be real depending on the state you're in you could have really high premiums and uh, so your op, your options are definitely limited carl you mentioned what we'll call geo arbitrage traveling outside those are the mainstream options and then we'll get into this but there's this other path that both Bill and I have taken, which is health share organizations.
1: I'd like to talk about the Affordable Care Act for just another moment. It's strange in the way it's structured in that there is no wealth test for it. And someone correct me if I'm wrong about that, but I remember reading a story about someone who had $10 million in wealth, but he had no current income. He was living off his nest egg. And he's, I would love to pay for my health care, but because of my situation, I'm thrown into Medicaid and I don't really feel right doing that, then I've thought about that too. I wouldn't feel good going on Medicaid. I want to contribute something because I can. Medicaid should be for a certain segment of the population, but not for me. Do you all have any thoughts on that, Bill? Yeah. I.
2: There have been times where I have actually fallen below the poverty line based on the fact that my income was low that year, which of course, those of us in the community know that without a standard W-2 paycheck, we can manipulate what our income looks like year over year. And that never felt right. And I certainly didn't take advantage of any of the government sponsored opportunities that are for people who have less wealth than I have. And I think it's unfortunate that there isn't a wealth test. I'm a fan ultimately, just to be clear right at the outset, I hope that the health opportunities that we're going to talk about later today will eventually disrupt the entire system and change it. I'm a huge fan of the police department and the fire department and the library system and all these things that we've come together as a community of Americans or people worldwide, frankly, where we go, geez, it's really stupid for us all to have our private security systems. Why don't we hire a police department and we'll all get the benefit at a lower cost with better coverage. Why we don't have that for health is insane to me. And something else that we didn't mention before that when John was talking is, and he'll know statistics better than I, but a vast number of bankruptcies in the United States are due to health issues. So people here, and again, I'm always thinking about the fact that your your excellent podcast is, has a worldwide dispersion, is that there are people all over the world who Don't realize that in the United States, when you get very sick or injured, your entire net worth is at stake and that you've got to pay for it. And if you've got money, they'll find it. And it's particularly dangerous for those of us in the FI community who work very hard to produce a nest egg and, of course, try to convince people that we're not super rich. We just have thought about it in a different way and have amassed this to live off of. In the case of having a a bad accident or an illness, you potentially will lose all of that.
1: Why is healthcare in the United States so expensive? <laughs> I, I, my, my first
2: response is, and then I'll go back and forth with John on this one, cause we can talk about this all day long. Off the top of my head, I think the disconnect between the consumer and the provider is one of the very few things where, cause Americans are incredibly well-trained, I talked about way at the beginning, at finding bargains, right? We are really good at looking for better deals. And half of the mail we get, both email and paper mail is about opening a bank account and getting a better rate over there or a sale that's going on. And so we're very well trained at comparing prices and finding the best deal, except with healthcare because we don't know what the prices are and we're not the one paying for it. In general, obviously not me, I actually do pay for it and that's what we'll get into, But Most people go, I have insurance and the insurer pays for it. And the doctor doesn't even know how much it costs because very few people ever ask her or him what the costs are, and they have a hard time finding it as well. So it's very interesting that in our massively consumer-based capitalistic system that otherwise works pretty well, healthcare is not, doesn't fall under that. So the disconnect between the customer and the provider, I'd say is the number one reason why our, our market-driven economy is not forcing prices down.
1: And I heard something very interesting recently from you, Bill, but I, I'd like John to comment on this. It was the 80-20 split about where, uh, I'm not sure if it's revenue or profit, but where income from insurance companies has to go and how this incentivizes bad behavior and high costs.
3: Yeah, so I agree with what Bill's saying about the market um, environment, the 80-20, there's a law in place that when health insurance companies, their proceeds, whatever they're bringing in, 80% of that so-called, I I assume that's just all premiums, but maybe there's some other revenue sources, but what they're taking in, and parenthetically, I should say, insurance is a basic model of pulling in money, pooling it, and redistributing it as needed. Uh, The math is difficult. You have to have your actuaries, but that's the model. So what they're pulling in, they have to spend 80% on medical claims, medical expenses. They get to keep that 20% for overhead, admin, profit. That's what they keep. And it's 85-15 for employer plans with 50 employees or over. So it's in that that ballpark. What happens is think of this as a pie chart. You've got a, a pie chart and that sliver of 20 or 15% is what they take. And then the big Pac-Man sized part is what has to go out. Now, the, the, the reasons for that presumably are to make sure, it's to force people, force insurance uh, organizations, companies to, to take care of their members, to take care of the policyholders by actually paying out, not just denying claims. And in fact, the, the 80 number is referred to in the industry as uh, I believe the medical loss ratio. A key insight there is that if you're an insurance company, you're going to view that as a loss, right? Anything you pay out is a loss. So that's where the ratio is. Here's the perverse incentive. Go back to the pie chart. And how do you make that sliver, that 15 or 20% bigger? Because we're working on percentages. The only thing we can really do here is, I guess we could get more. You basically have to grow the pie. So you take the pie and you get it bigger. How do you get that bigger? Well, you bring in more revenue. How do you get more revenue? You raise premiums. So as your prices go up, which we all pay, that 15 to 20% also can get bigger. So it's linked up where the more money you bring in, the more money you can keep in. But then the more money you have to pay out. So when you're paying that out, what is your incentive at the insurance company level to negotiate down prices? You'd probably be okay with inflated prices because those are your medical costs that you have to pay on. So if those medical costs go up, then you are, you know, de facto making more. You know, as as, you, as what you keep.
1: That's just insane to me that they're incentivized to do the wrong thing to charge people. <laughs> They do better the more insurance costs, the more the medical care costs, which should be the opposite. And I have no idea what the answer to this is. I'm sure smarter people have come up with solutions. But it's amazing that they're incentivized to charge the most as possible, the most possible for medical care. And, yeah, and this is reg- Sorry, just this is a regulated
3: space. They can't just arbitrarily raise it. That's why every year or so you'll see bidding on your state, the insurance board will review the price change. They request a certain percentage increase and then they have to prove that. As far as I know, they get approved. Going Sorry. back no.
2: to the, the normal market, Carl, is, it's like when you were talking, I thought this is normal. Safeway can charge more for tomatoes if they want, except no one's gonna buy them because they're gonna be cheaper over at Whole Foods, or not in this case. Without knowing that price transparency, our entire system of checks and balances in the United States basically doesn't work. So you can't that there's they can raise their price and no one can compare apples to go, hey, wait a minute. I'm Anthem is charging me twice as much as Pilgrim. I'm gonna go switch over to Pilgrim.
3: Yeah. So just to piggyback on that comment about price pricing, that's really the heart of the matter. It, look, medical costs rise because there's better technology, right? They have to invest. There's those costs are are, are greater, no doubt. But if we're talking about price discovery, your role as a consumer, or your ability as a consumer to find out what the price of something is. If if anyone's out there who's ever had to do this, it's impossible. It's not just a matter of how widely varied the prices can be. It's they can be varied within a hospital. They can be varied depending on you going to the ER, you can get charged, or they could bill out $10,000 for a a diagnostic uh, procedure or, or imaging. And it could be a few hundred dollars. So crazy.
0: Like in any other marketplace, that is just a fucked up situation. No one would stand for it. You could just walk out. Now, are there some medical facilities that do have a line item menu and, and you can actually like ahead of time, you could travel to this place and know what you're paying.
3: The big one for surgery, it's, it's a surgery center. And I think it's, it's Oklahoma. I think it's in Tulsa and they have pre-negotiated flat rates for surgeries.
2: Yep. So people around the country travel to this surgery center that's very highly regarded, staffed by excellent board certified doctors where they have a menu, a price list. It's going to the pizza place. You get a a plain slice and then it's this much extra for mushrooms. And then similarly, I I don't know if this was on our agenda to talk about today, but we talk about it certainly on on the Fire Guild is of a, a sort of an burgeoning field of the dpc which is direct primary care both john and i are members of dpcs as are our families and those are individual doctors so it's the person i go to see if i have a sinus infection or i uh, spray my ankle stacking wood And they actually tell you exactly kind of what's covered. And then if anything's extra, the price. So literally blood draws are covered, but if you want your kid to have a form filled out for camp, that's an extra $10 An x-ray is $40. If you want a, a prescription filled for your antidepressant or your heart medication or whatever it is that so many Americans take, it's very clearly delineated on their price list. So there are options for medical uh, providers who give exact prices, but they're hard to find and they are considered avant-garde.
0: So I, I wanna go deeper in that. I don't know if that was on our list either, but the insurance company profits versus expenses, that's a very good example of unintended consequences based on regulation for the direct primary care. Yeah. Are there any unintended downsides from having that transparency in the pricing?
3: Let me jump in. Uh So it's not a la carte to start. It's a membership. We I pay $60 a month. My wife is at a different um practice. She's the same price. So that's every month you pay a subscription essentially. And what that can be defined, redefined as it's basically like prepaid healthcare, right? You're, you're paying for something that you haven't yet at the beginning of the month, so that's the way these, these physicians make their money is because they have a reliable roster of, of patients. The unintended consequence, I, I, I honestly can't see any right now because I grew up with a country doctor and we went to this person's home and a family member was the assistant and it was like right there. And there was no, no layers of bureaucracy or anything. So the DPC for me is an hour visit every year that can be literally anything I want to talk about. It, it's not coded for wellness or sickness. Anyway, the DPC is just wide open and it's there as you need it. The only, look, we were talking earlier about kind of the ethical component of healthcare in that you wouldn't want to join in Medicaid if you had a lot of money. DPCs may or may not be able to handle the the macro amounts of patients in this country. I don't know. I don't know if we could all sign up for DPCs. How it would look? I'm not sure. Because there is a model for pushing through patients who really need to be seen in a 15-minute slot. So I don't see a downside to the DPC. What's the downside between to restoring the patient-doctor relationship? You're basically taking out that third party, right? The insurance company is not over the DPC's shoulder saying, hey, we're not going to cover this. We're going to cover this. And this is what you need to do. And we don't The DPC is, no, I'm a doctor. This is what I trained for. I didn't get into this business to negotiate with insurance people. In fact, our, our DPC doesn't take insurance, doesn't deal with insurance. There's no insurance connection at all with them.
1: I had a thought while you were talking about DPCs, and I don't think I've seen an actual physician in years. It's probably been 10 years. Every time I go to For a checkup, I see a nurse or a physician's assistant, and I'm not saying those people aren't qualified. I've been happy with their care, but who knows? It's probably a little bit better if you could have the top person in the field, the doctor, versus that other person. And I'm sure seeing the nurse is just a result of healthcare trying to drive down. It's the result of the insurance company trying to drive down the cost.
2: I realized that the unintended consequence of the DPC, really the only one I could think of is that. I deal one-on-one with one doctor. And if, in, in my particular case, it's not an issue, but I know of some people who have taken advantage of the system is that I, my doctor can call bullshit. If I were a hypochondriac, and at times I felt like one, he said, hey, don't worry about this. I know you're just getting spun up. He knows me. And so in some ways, I think when people are manipulating the system, for example, for more attention or for drugs or for things where they're, abusing the system, they can't do that. And I'd say the only bad thing if I have to poke a hole in the DPC method is that your doctor takes a vacation, but in that case, of course, they're a professional and they have backup in the case of our doctor, who is just a, a guy, I see the same guy every time, and he's got one staff person. He will say, oh, there are three other DPCs in the area who, is, who are covering for me while I take my wife and kids on a vacation. But that's about it. Otherwise, I think it's ideal. I'm a huge proponent of DPC. I spend a lot of time evangelizing about it, and uh, I'm very happy with it. And I use it almost zero. Carl, like you, I go to the doctor maybe once a year. Actually, one of the cool things about the DPC is you're required to see your DPC once a year because they want to make sure nothing's slipping between the cracks. They want to check in with you. And our DPC in particular has a fairly long required meeting because he knows that some people don't want to talk about some things, and so he just can maybe chat with you for a while until what's really bugging you comes out. If you've got some issue that you're embarrassed about or that you're uncomfortable talking to anyone about, even your doctor.
1: John, any final thoughts on DPCs?
2: Yeah, we were talking about maybe
3: possible perverse incentives, and I I can think of a very positive one here, and this is especially helpful here for the FI community which we talked about at the beginning of the show where folks are trying to protect a nest egg, or if they're on their journey, anyone who wants to protect, you know, their assets, this is a containment strategy for the DPC because you are, you already know what you're paying. And the incentive here is that you're only going to go if you need to, the doctor's not going to try to upsell you on anything. There's no extra tests. There's no extra, incentive to prescribe medications, whether it's to cover your, cover their butt or or whatever it is, but there's no outside incentives, right? They're totally in the driver's seat. So your costs are essentially contained and they don't have an incentive to keep putting you to referring you out to cover all their bases and check off all of these boxes, which the big picture here, if you're in a high deductible plan, okay. And your premiums are high.
1: I want to say one more thing about insurance and how messed up it is, and then we'll transition to talking about healthcare sharing organizations. So, I heard a stat yesterday. I wasn't even preparing for this podcast, it just came on the radio. And they said in Western Europe, which often has better healthcare outcomes than the United States, they spend about 10% of their GDP, their gross national product, on healthcare. In the US, that number is 18%. So our GDP is 20 trillion dollars. I did some quick math right now. That's about 1.6 trillion more than we're paying than Western Europe for often poorer outcomes. And that's just amazing. Can you imagine what we could do with 1.6 trillion? We could put that towards technology or education or infrastructure. and it just goes to probably a lot of waste because we have worse outcomes and we're paying more. Let's talk about healthcare sharing organizations. Bill, what is a healthcare sharing organization? So I think many people in the uh, FI community
2: are are familiar with the acronym HCSM, which is a healthcare sharing ministry. That is one type of healthcare sharing organization. But going back to what John said earlier, essentially it's a group of individuals managed by an organization who pool their resources to pay for
1: medical costs. How is it different from a typical insurance company?
2: There are lots of differences. I'll jump on a couple and then switch over to John. Generally they are not regulated by the insurance industry, right? So they they are not insurance. That's one of the most important things to understand, in that they can make up their own rules. And some people find that to be a weakness of them. I consider that to be a strength of them. The second part is that they're our rules, and in some ways, uh, their being able to choose their own rules makes some people uncomfortable. It makes people like me more comfortable because they think about things a little bit more. They're not They're not just regulated by fear, essentially. And then they can also control their membership. Obviously, you, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, but if you're going to choose to be a member of a group, if you're essentially, in my opinion, forced by our bad system to have to choose to be part of a group, as opposed to there not being a specific group, it would be all Americans. I'm not choosing to be a member of the group that is covered by the Portland Police Department. When I go back to talking about the police being for everybody, it's not like uh, there are different security companies and I choose to which one to be under. So ultimately, I would like there to be no choice, because Healthcare is just like your house is burning and the fire department comes and takes care of it. In this case, you have to choose. And I think that being able to choose who is in my group is something that is unique about health sharing as opposed to standard insurance where you're just part of a pool and you don't really know who else is in it. Do you have other thoughts about what the differences are, John?
3: Yeah, you know, it makes me think about We keep referring to our our current system in America, and and really, one thing to remember is we really do have a hybrid system. First of all, Bill and I are more or less agnostic on the policy issues of whether we should have, let's say, a national healthcare system or a 100% free market system. It's playing out. We've all seen the discussions, and personally, people are feeling the pressures of that in their their own financial lives. In this country, we have a hybrid system. If you're hooked up to the VA, you have a much more socialist model really the government's paying for pretty much everything right if you look at the world you basically have four four kinds of health care systems that one tracks with something you might find in like cuba if you have a great uh, employer plan you're in a, a privatized market where your benefits are incredible if you're on medicaid maybe you're more like the european model in some ways but for a lot of people you exist in this zone especially in rural populations they exist in this zone where their health care coverage is like on par with in terms of accessibility and maybe even outcomes, someplace like like in India, uh, rural India, or, or, or basically what you pay out of your pocket is what you get. So the health sharing model, as Bill has pointed out, is legally and technically not considered insurance. Insurance is the assignment of a claim, a financial claim, that a company engages in that third-party payer. They become financially responsible for that Financial liability. So, if something happens to me and I have a bill, the insurance company is legally by contract going to be required to cover that. The health share organizations sidestepped this and tried to carve out a space for themselves to basically do a similar thing pool money and distribute it out as needed. And what we've seen in this country is sometime in the 80s or 90s, some religious groups in the Midwest started forming these, it's almost like a barn raising. We're going to help a member of the community by pooling our resources, whether it's labor or money for, for something that could happen like a fire to your barn or you break a leg. We have to draw the line because for disclosure purposes, these health organizations, the health share organizations are not insurance. They don't want to be regulated. They want to exist as a parallel system. So when the ACA came in, in, in play in 2010, there was a carve out for, I think, seven organizations, all religious and they had been practicing as of the last day of the year of 1999. That carve out gave them some space to operate as an organization which would not be regulated.
1: How does going to see a doctor with a health share caring organization differ from if you had typical insurance?
2: Sure. The first step is that you choose your own provider. Unlike with insurance companies where there are networks and you have to, we've all heard horror stories of sort of these residual bills from an out of network provider that you're surprised by later. In the case of most health sharing organizations, you choose the provider, you become the consumer, you go and pursue the care that you need. The second one is, I'll just stick with answering your question directly. So you would, you break your leg, you'd go to the hospital or the doctor of your choice. You can ask the questions you want. You can tell them that you are uninsured because officially you are and potentially, and I think we're really talking about the financial aspects of it, is that you can negotiate rates. You can get a cash rate. There are a lot of things that people don't realize is that when you are dealing with a doctor's office or a hospital, they are at the end of the day, a business and they do have different pricing for different customers and they're going to take what they can get. And when you get down to the point of being uninsured, you become part of this entirely different pool. And typically when you are uninsured in the United States, you are considered to be destitute in some way. But when you present yourself as an uninsured person who has a credit card, in my case, then they are much more willing to give you some pretty preferential pricing as in many cases, significantly better than even the best negotiated price for insurance. You still go to a doctor. You still get your cast on and you, you still pay. And then I think further on what you might want to ask Carl is how the billing works. The health share that I'm involved with, you you pay out of pocket, ideally as little as possible, if it's a very large bill because their health sharing organization will help negotiate those larger bills. But if it's something smaller, you pay out of pocket. The provider is happy. They usually give you a much better rate because they're getting paid quickly. And then you submit those bills as as long as they fulfill the, re, the requirements for it with the health share, and then you are reimbursed by the health share. And depending on your health share, that can be slower or faster. And that's, again, what's great is that there is some fairly clear competition within the health share segment. So I, I think the big difference is that you are not, your number one goal is to get better is to go get care that you're comfortable with from a provider that you... The other thing I was going to mention, because I know you like this concept, Carl, is uh, the geo-arbitrage, as John likes to say, or for those of us who don't speak fancy language, traveling for care. (laughs) You can actually, and I have done this, I traveled to Europe for care for certain procedures, and the health share supports that, right? Again, it's not a network thing. So they're looking for you to get the best care you can get, at the best price you can get. You're incentivized to do that.
1: So a follow-up question. You said that they aren't really regulated by the same, at least the same regulations as an insurance company. And I'm just going to throw out one concept out there, like uh, existing condition or pre-existing condition, which always sounded redundant to me. But anyway, let's say you have a condition. Are all, I know how Sidera handles it, but are they all different or are, are they all the same? For example, if I had a cancer or something like that, and I wanted to join a healthcare sharing organization, would I shop around for one that dealt with the condition of an existing condition better than Sedera, which I think has a one-year waiting wait? correct, if you have a condition?
2: I'll answer a little bit, and then I'll switch it over to John. The first is, I think this is the first time during the podcast we've mentioned Sedera. Yes, that's S-E-D-E-R-A. And Sedera is the health sharing organization that John and I are both involved with as as customers. And there are different responses to the pre-existing condition. I would say the the blanket, and again not knowing all of them, is that they handle them differently and it is a major difference between health share organizations and insurance. The ACA, one of the stipulations of the ACA is that everyone's covered regardless of pre-existing condition. And health shares, I think all of them have certain exclusions around Pre-existing conditions and John knows how they work with Sidera. And also he's had experience with another house share. So I'll let him answer the rest of it.
3: That's exactly right. The preexisting condition is the way for them to contain costs, right? So as a model, if you can ensure, can you, if you can guarantee that you have more or less healthy people in your pool, that's less money that gets paid out. So the incentive within that is to do it. So the ACA came along and provided that coverage for folks who, you know, because it used to be where you couldn't, if you had a preexisting condition and let's say that the insurance policy dropped you, what did you do then? You'd basically you're like damaged goods in someone's eyes. And then you'd go looking for a policy and then they would see that and they would, your premiums would go through the roof. So the actual consequence of that is people not having coverage, but with the health shares, there are no. There, there are none of these legal requirements. And that's what I talked about before, which was the carve outs. You can, whether you think that's fair or not, it isn't really the point because there are ACA plans for people to, to look into. But if you're so minded that you want to be part of a community like that, the pre existing conditions for Sedera, for example, are there's a 36 month look back period. So by the time you join, when you join, you'd look back 36 months. So if anything came up, they might, if they, felt the need to confer with your doctor and you sign, a, you sign a form that says you, can, your medical information would get disclosed and, and, it's, and it's tiered, right? So, it, the, 36, uh, the, thir- the, so the, the 36 months for the first year, there's no sharing. That's the term we use when the community of people who are members, um, and remember it is a community, we're all pooling our money. So we keep that mindset of money in money out. The money goes to a member of our community. So we're sharing with that other member. And we're not sharing for pre-existing condition in the first year. The second year, I want to say it's 15,000 and the third year is I think 25,000. And after 36 months going forward, you would have everything shared. So no pre-existing conditions. Let's say if you waited it out in year four, you had something that was before your membership and you had a procedure. That's how Sidera does it. We're basically incentivizing people to disclose fully what conditions they have and making sure, honestly, that people aren't, and this is a problem that's happened in the health share industry is people who have a condition, they join. And then a month later, they got a torn rotator cuff. Oh, did that happen then? Or was it two months ago? And so, and in one problem would, would be also that, you know, folks who are joining who might be already be pregnant or were planning on getting pregnant and they would join and they had to consider that a pre-existing condition for obvious reasons.
2: Because I said this is typically one of the biggest sort of arguments against health sharing versus ACA is I really like being part of a group that incentivizes me and the people who are in the group with me to remain healthy the responsibility, the personal responsibility is what it comes down to. I love personal responsibility. I I, I, I rail on a daily basis. My wife can uh, attest that I bitch all the time about people doing dumb things. And a lot of them is because they're not uh, taking responsibility for their own actions. And so with uh, Sidera, the one I've chosen, I like the fact that my fellow Sidera members are all thinking, in a communal way. They are trying to remain healthy, which is obviously best for them. If you guys were in this with me, I want both of you to remain healthy because uh, we all are happier when we're healthy. But on top of it, there's also a financial incentive. The less money that is being spent on unhealthy behaviors, or in this case, pre-existing conditions, the more my wealth is being protected right? We're trying to think of insurance really as a protection of those of us who are are striving for FIs. We're trying to protect and limit the liability and exposure we have to our nest egg. So I, I do see the sort of the bad part of it, but it's a personal choice that I'm making, and I believe in it.
1: How does Sidera incentivize you to be healthy? The first one is
2: that they recommend... They get actually give you a discount if you are a member of a DPC. So we talked a little bit about DPCs already. The idea is they have obviously done their work and recognize that people who have a positive, healthy, one-on-one relationship with their medical service provider are in a much, much better health. And I personally, I am a fan of sort of the idea of that my body is in balance and that it's sort of like a gyroscope, it wants to stay stable. And if it wobbles, it wants to find center again. And the more quickly I can deal with something that is potentially a problem, the more likely I'm going to get back to stable. So DPC involvement is a big part of Sidera's membership. And I think that's a big place where they incentivize it. They also have rules. There are some hard and fast rules and I'm not gonna shy away from them. If you're involved in an illegal activity, And and we're going to switch back and forth between language that most people understand because they've dealt with insurance and language that Sidera uses, which is slightly different because they don't want to appear to be insurance. But if you have, if you've, you go to rob a bank and you get in the getaway car and you have a bad car accident, you're not quote unquote covered. You were involved in an illegal activity. You were being stupid. Sidera is not going to share in that. You're obviously not being community minded by exposing all of us to your risk. And so they have various rules in place where they reject shares due to bad behavior. If you are overdosing on an illegal drug, I'm sorry, you're not covered. Again, that word coverage is not something that Sidera uses. It'd be that your need is not shared. But those are two that I can think of right off the bat where they incentivize good behavior.
1: The main criticism I hear and the main objection I hear when we talk about healthcare sharing organizations is people will say they're not legally required to pay for anything like they could deny my quote just cuz they're not they don't have the same regulation as an insurance company so what would you say to someone who had that objection
2: it's it's interesting i i think that your question has various different parts can you break it down a little bit carl
1: yeah i would say so if if i break my arm the insurance company absolutely has to pay for my care but And and correct me if I'm wrong, but a healthcare sharing organization does not have to. I mean, they're they're going to, but they don't have to. And a lot of people see that little loophole and try to shoot the whole concept down just because of that and wouldn't even consider it just because they'll say they don't have to pay for it. So just because of that, I'm not going to sign up because I'm going to get cancer and they're going to say, we're not paying and then I'm going to die.
2: I'll start at the end, which is that we're all going to die and move backwards from that. I think that the the important thing to recognize is that everything that we choose in our capitalistic society, every aspect of our lives involves some risk. And generally we offset that risk with either research or prior experience. Particularly in the case of Sidera, with I think 30 plus thousand members and approaching a decade of, of being in existence, there are They have a a perfect rating with the Better Business Bureau. They're clearly not in the business of denying people. So if you need that 100% ironclad insurance that if you neglect your health and do something stupid, you're still going to get care, then you shouldn't join a health sharing organization. And the last thing I'll do is to remind people. A lot of people, as you say, they, they see this loop and they go, aha, I, I can't join because of that. And I want to go, have you ever heard of an insurance company denying a claim? Have you ever any of your friends who've ever had a story about uh, difficulty getting the coverage that supposedly they have? Because when we're all, we all think that everything's going to be fine always, right? And I have insurance and I'm all set. Yeah. And then when you get sick, or you get injured, you'd be very surprised how very hard the insurance company will fight to not necessarily pay out. We've all experienced it in one way or another, either anecdotally with car insurance, for example, but people think they have great insurance until they find out they don't. And Sidera, I feel is incredibly transparent right up front about what is covered and what is not, and going into it, I know. When I when I go to rob my next bank, I just figure Sodera is not going to help me out if I have an accident.
1: I guess my thought on that whole topic is, if Sidera was shitty and didn't pay, someone would yap about it on the internet. This would blow up, and then people w- would know about it. So, I think yeah, access yeah. to information being access to information being what it is. If people did have issues, it would be all over and would fail quickly because John would get cancer and then Sedara would say, no, we're not paying for it. And then there'd be a story on marketwatch.com and Sedara would be in in a lot of trouble very quickly.
3: Yeah, the the issue really, honestly, to boil it all down, it's going to sound a little naive maybe, but there is a trust factor here, right? The free market is supposed to be about trust and there's institutions that back that up, right? There's enforceability. In this case, you look at the information that's out there, just like you guys are talking about, and you say, if this is a fly-by-night operation that showed up six weeks ago, okay, how much trust are you gonna have? But in this case, we have a fair amount of data. Sedara's executive team and uh parent company have been involved in medical bill negotiating for, I wanna say, 25 years. They are a health-sharing organization that is secular, whereas I mentioned a religious foundation or the other health share organizations. Sidera is secular. And there are some health share organizations that took on what's turned out to be too many members too quickly. And in one case I have in mind, and that's because they got squishy on their their rules. A lot of those organizations, by the way, have requirements like you got to go to church once a week. You have to have a note from your pastor. You have to sign a, a creed of biblical beliefs. It's laid out for you, so you have a choice. But in this case, we have an organization that is secular. It's based on good faith. And what Bill and I tell anyone who has this doubt deeply seated, we say, look, Sedera might not be for you. And if it's not, that's okay. Because this is a membership that you
2: don't wanna join if you don't understand completely what this is. Go in eyes wide open. A couple things I, that I think need some underlining. The first one, the number one reason I chose Sedera over any of the health sharing ministries remember health, Sidera as a health sharing organization, is it is secular. I do not think I'll die on this hill. Religion should not be part of healthcare. It's, they're two separate things in my opinion. One is faith and one is science. And so I was very attracted to Sidera because they are secular. The other nice thing about Sidera in particular is they are based in Austin, Texas their entire staff is in Austin, Texas. When you pick up the phone and dial their toll-free number, you speak to a person in Austin, Texas, part of a small team, and they will work with you individually if you've got specific questions about joining or if you've got questions after uh, you've joined and you're considering some sort of procedure or you've had some medical issue and you wanna talk to them for guidance and you're not dealing with this huge insurance kind of thing. And it, it still goes back to the fact that Sidera is very transparent. When you sign up, you don't have to sign something that says that you have a relationship with God since they are secular, and most of the other ones do require things like that. You do have to make a pledge for that you are planning to pursue good health, that you are trying to keep yourself and your family as healthy as possible at all times, that you, are, uh, that you understand that illegal activities are not acceptable and that you can't be part of the group if you are planning to pursue those and that you have read the membership guidelines. As John mentioned, I doubt, I don't know anybody. And you guys actually, I'll ask you, Carl and Doug, you're both, I think you guys called it, I never heard it, Wi-Fi, right? You're on your wife <laughs> uh, insurance. Do you have any idea what the limitations are about X, Y, or Z?
0: Yeah, I really... I don't know. I th- we actually do have good insurance, but I've never read it. My wife works in the medical industry, wow. so she on the billing side and admin side. So she has a very acute understanding of what's going on, and she'll argue with the insurance companies for hours until they break down. She's like she'll she could. She's not in a good mood about it, but she'll work through it. What, what about you, Carl?
1: Is she for hire? I might want to hire her next time Yeah, I have an
0: incident. She could be an advocate. I think she loves to take those people down.
1: Yeah. So I'll say two things that are slightly embarrassing, the second one more so. The first one is I don't think I have a primary doctor. I don't know the name of that person if I do. Second one, I don't even know who our insurance company is. So the, there you go. So the answer <laughs> to your question, Bill, is I have no fucking clue. RTPC Doug had
3: that same. It was on the phone with insurers all the time. That's that's the interesting thing. Yeah, you're like, whoa, a lot of back and forth going on. It's called inefficiency.
0: Yeah, it's insane.
2: The fun thing uh, is that people like your wife are the ones who are working at Sidera. Okay, a lot of people there just they just love to to hammer on service providers that are charging egregious rates. Sidera, the back end of Sidera is a a cost negotiating group called the Caris group. And um, that's specifically what they do. So they actually advocate on Sidera members' behalfs When you've got a a big bill, you've got, as Carl mentioned, you've got cancer or you've got some very complicated procedure where there are a lot of different providers and different bills. Sidera works with you and they specifically have people on staff that are like your wife, Doug, people who want to get, they'll just, they'll go to bat for you because they want to protect the community. And and the fund that Sidera puts everyone's, all the members' money into is actually administered by a nonprofit. Unlike the insurance industry, where there are rules about how it gets spent and you want to spend it all, there's no incentive with Sidera for them to spend more because the more they keep there, the more we all get. And they're all members themselves.
0: I like that they don't require the commitment to God, but do you think you would have a better healthcare outcome if you did commit to God. That's a joke, uh, that's too dry. No, no,
2: no, no. I definitely, I, I think that in some cases, some of the, the health sharing uh, ministries, the HCSMs are excellent. I think anyone who, who has the, the belief system, the faith in their lives, that they feel that they can fulfill the requirements of some of the other health shares, should be looking at them. Absolutely. I'm automatically disqualified. I'm a, an atheist. And I also think that, what, what I'm saying is that people who do have beliefs that fit in should definitely be looking at all of the options.
1: I've got a question and I'm going to throw out an extreme situation to set the tone for it. And I think this is going to play so you said a very interesting word, Bill, to start off this whole interview and it was disruption. So what if I decide I want to start a healthcare share organization and I just want to have marathon runners in there and vegetarians and so I'm gonna take all the I'm gonna take humanity and take all the cream off the top, like the people who are extremely healthy. So one unintended consequence or maybe an unintended consequence is all the unhealthy people are, are left behind. And that's probably going to do harm to everyone else because I'm taking all the marathon runners off and I can be cheap and they're all going to want to join because they're super healthy and eat broccoli and all that shit. So what do you think? What would your argument against that be, this harm to society? And yeah. And how do you think this could disrupt healthcare?
2: The first one is. People ask that a lot because they think that health shares are unfair, right? That they're leaving all these other people with pre-existing conditions for the ACA. And essentially the ACA is going to be filled with all the sick and weak people. I, my defense to that, and I I know I sound defensive, but you know, I am who I am is, hey, I, I wasn't in my perfect situation. If you remember way back at the beginning, the system I'm trying to disrupt is the one where I have to choose who insures me. I'm, I, I don't want to have to make this decision. I don't want to have to choose between Sidera or any of the other ones or Pilgrim or Anthem, or I don't choose which police department. When I call nine one one, they come it, it's in my opinion it's sort of life, Liberty and the pursuit of happiness, right? These are inalienable rights. And my response is, I would love to not have to be a member of Sidera because I thought that the healthcare system was excellent because it isn't. And I do have choice. I make the choice to yeah, narrow my group. I wanna be pooled in with people who are also caring about their health, who are like-minded, et cetera, et cetera. I paid for private school for my child and it's because I liked the way that school ran. I liked their curriculum. I liked the other parents that were there. I liked the other kids that were there. I made that choice because I can. If I were in a system where the public school system was excellent, there wouldn't be a market for private schools and I wouldn't even be having this conversation. I think, yeah, Bill, you're
3: basically talking about what you're going to see in the FI community and people who are rising to that goal. If you're caught in a rock in a hard place, we have all kinds of things going on in this country, as we referred to earlier, 50% in employer plants. If you're not of that elect group, then you got to go fend for yourself. So those folks, you're self-employed, you're unemployed, society has huge needs, and people can quickly get ideological about this, but if you look, as I did... I, six years ago, when I, I first started my I first joined a health share, I was facing the numbers. And so I was, as Bill said, facing a choice I, I felt like I needed to make. Now, I could have just ridden the, ridden the wave and kept my premiums and said, you know what? I'm paying into the system. That's fine. But I chose to save money. And I felt like I made a rational choice because that's the range of choices I had. And so I'm stuck in a, between paying a ton more for an equal product. I just saw that as a transfer of wealth. The money that I was paying in for higher premiums was just going, not necessarily to better healthcare outcomes. It was probably going to a balance sheet that was not going to do any good for anyone but someone who's already got enough money, maybe. If you want to do single payer, that's the conversation to have. And if you're going to do that, then just make a level tax where I'm very familiar with European systems. I have a lot of friends in Europe, and no one complains about their healthcare seriously. If I'm an American and they're complaining, I look at them like, really? What, what they'll say is they have higher taxes. If we just had a broad tax, and you could hate that, but then we'd all get taxed. And my 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 premium wouldn't be going up to $300 a month. Maybe my taxes don't get that much. It gets spread out more. And just tying into that, if I could end my, my participation here with some numbers, I feel like they're going to be eye-popping, and maybe we can quantify this. Six years ago, I joined health sharing. My health premiums uh, for a family of four, all healthy. We're not sapping the system. We were at 600 uh, a month. Then the next year it was 900. And then it was 1,200. They give you notice of what it's going to become right after they've gotten approval for their increases. So at 1,200 a month, I'm steering this down. I think this is the end of 2015. Okay. You do the math on that. What is that? Uh,
2: 14,400.
3: Yeah, 14,400. That's my premiums. That's a high deductible policy. So I was going to be on the hook for around $12,000, $13,000 of out-of-pocket. That all adds up to somewhere in the $27,000 range. I pay all my premiums. I get in a car accident. That all has to get paid before I see dollar number one. So if I look at what I shifted into with my monthly uh, contribution in a health share organization, I want to say I went in at $500 and it's basically stayed around there. I'm a little bit less than that. That's so there. I'm at 490 a month right now. I did the math on this. That's $8,000 a year that I saved starting in 2016. I went into online. I I did an investment calculator. If I took the difference in my premium, which was $667. Okay. And I treated that as an investment. I put it into the S and P 500 Vanguard index fund. That's what I did. Every month I was doing that for six years. Now we had a great bull market. Okay. But what I put in, and with market rates of the S&P 500, that turned into, what is my number? $77,000, okay? And I think that was gains of something like 48,000 or or 50,000. I ended up with $77,000 more just on the gap. At that point, I'm starting to trend towards self-insuring, right? If I get a big bill, I'm starting to move towards really being able to pay that on my own.
1: That is a big number. That's insane, yeah.
2: Yeah, pe- people don't recognize that.
0: And this has been amazing. I've learned a ton, but we do. We are wrapping up here. So Bill, can you tell us about the Fire Guild a little bit?
2: Sure, the Fire Guild, uh, you're seeing it. It's John and it's me. And what we did was pool our experience with Sidera and previous to that, John was involved with a Christian health-sharing ministry. So we've pulled those resources and our knowledge base together to basically disseminate the information. I I hate redundancy of effort. I, I don't think it's cheating to ask somebody who knows something, what the answer is. That you don't have to figure it out yourself. So the idea is that we built the fire guild and it's still growing to be a resource for people, particularly in the FI community to find out more specifically about Sidera. We both have gone through a lot of conversations with the management at Sidera with all levels of it from the CEO on down. And it's important for other people to be able to access that knowledge. And as a completely retired person and as a semi-retired person like John is, we've got time to talk about this. I I like talking about this. It's a subject that many people are unsure about and the Fire Guild is there for them to reach out to us specifically. If you go to thefireguild.com or you email Bill at or John at, that's J-O-N, You'll actually get a response from us because we want to answer the question. We don't want you to have to figure it out yourself. If it's something we can answer quickly, then we like doing that. And we've helped a lot of people. And a lot of people have joined Sidera through the fire guild because they either read about it on mrmoneymustache.com or they found it elsewhere. And we really want to help other people settle their fears or steer them away because really they're part of our group. We represent two members of the 30,000 plus, and it's always fun to talk about.
1: Thank you. That was very thorough. And I learned something every time I talk to you, Bill, and thank you, John, as well.
0: Thank, thank you, both. Guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the show. That was the Mile High Five podcast, and I'm Doug Cunnington, the Balder host, and Carl Jensen is the cool, sexy one. If you dig the show, please do three things for us. Number one, tell a friend, a family member, an enemy about the show. We really don't care who you tell. Maybe forward them a specific show that you know that they will like. It's the single most helpful thing that you can do to spread the word. It's like giving us a virtual high five and uh, actually we don't give high fives in, in person, so the virtual kind's pretty good. And more importantly, your friend or family member or even your enemy will appreciate the fact that you were thinking of them. Number two, make sure you're following or subscribed on your podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, YouTube, whatever you're using, and that way you won't miss a show. And number three, please leave us a rating and review. We read them on the show occasionally, and you might hear yours out there on an upcoming episode. Quick disclaimer, this show is not financial or legal advice. I'd actually be surprised if it sounded like it it's really just for entertainment and that's at least what we're hoping for but seriously get advice from professionals carl and i are just two guys with microphones that sit in my basement and talk so we'll catch y'all next week